It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. In April of last year, I interviewed Rory Sullivan Burke, the author of The Light Pours Out of Me, the first and only authorized biography of the brilliant late guitar legend John McGeoch, who died in 2004 at the age of 48. McGeoch's career took him from playing with Howard DeVoto in the band Magazine, the band that DeVoto would form after leaving the Buzzcocks, Susie and the Banshees, with John Lydon and Public Image Limited, and with several other amazing projects as well. Unfortunately, much of his brilliance has been somewhat overlooked over the years, even though there's no question that McGeoch's creativity literally helped shape post-punk in the late 70s and throughout much of the 80s. His life story, though, has never been given the proper treatment until Rory Sullivan Burke discovered that it had simply never been done before. What's even more remarkable is that this was Rory's very first book. Not only that, but by his own tenacity and enthusiasm for McGeoch's highly respected playing, Rory was able to interview dozens of people, including former McGeoch bandmates, friends, and admirers, many of whom simply do not grant interviews to anybody except him. More importantly, he forged a very close relationship with McGeoch's family, including his mother and his daughter, Emily. Oddly enough, the first interview he did after the book was published was with me in April of 2022 where we found out that we not only share a great appreciation for much of the same music, we also happen to be devoted fans of the Boston Celtics, which is not something you might expect from a young man living in London. But here's the exciting part. Rory's book has become the inspiration for an upcoming documentary about McGeoch's life and career. The co-director of that film is documentary filmmaker Paul Singh, whose exceptional 2021 film Polystyrene, I Am a Cliché, had been given several nominations and awards, including Best Documentary at the British Independent Film Festival. In fact, I interviewed Celeste Bell, the daughter of the late Polystyrene, in January of last year, and if that film is any indication of what's in store for this new documentary film, that I wouldn't be surprised to see this one win a few awards as well. So it's a real pleasure to welcome back my friend and fellow Boston Celtic fanatic, Rory Sullivan Burke, on Baxi's Musical Podcast. I was going to say, how are you keeping? You doing well? I'm doing great. I'm, I, am, I am so happy for you. I, I, I really am. I mean, you, you know, when you and I talked last time, I think you told me that was like your first interview after the book. And I didn't know that. I, ha I had no idea that that was true. But, you know, you and I have gotten to know at least a, each other a, li a little bit online. And having read the book and being a fan of McGeoch, the, maybe not to the extent that, that you are, I'm so proud of where this book has gone and where it's led you and the fact that, you know, it's being made into a film. I, I literally just saw the trailer today and it looks it looks fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to see this when it's when it's finally complete. Tell me a little bit how you're feeling with all this. I mean, this is a this is a pretty remarkable couple of years here for you of, of getting this book out. And, and now your first book is going to be made into a film. It's unbelievable to me. It's unbelievable to me, Mike. I mean, it's you know, I didn't. I think we said at the time, you know, with the book, you just don't know how it's going to be received. I mean, especially when you haven't written before um, and about a subject which I think people who are into that kind of music, you know, they know their stuff. 
and me not being that generation as well. It's like, oh, you know, I hope I don't, you know, make any <laughs> massive glaring mistakes or, or, you know, step on anybody's toes or do anything the wrong way. Um, so, yeah, the reception in, I mean, the reception to the book was just amazing. Uh, really heartwarming. I think people really connected with the emotional side of the story, John's life and his relationship with his daughter, as we discussed, obviously, previously. But the the whole thing with the, with now with this film was just like such a an unexpected bonus. It really was. Um, you know, the, the approach was made to my publishers, and I think we're probably looking at about maybe a year ago now. And that was a slow process, you know, to get all of the stuff kind of moving and to get the rights and all the rest of it. Um, but the people, as I'm sure we'll talk about, Mike, who were involved behind the scenes with this, you know, you couldn't wish for a better kind of a cast, you know, of people. No, I, I was going to say, you know, I know, you know, Paul Singh is, uh, is co-directing this project. And you know, I thought the work that he did with Celeste Bell on the, the polystyrene documentary, I'm Not a Cliché, was absolutely amazing and an absolutely beautiful de depiction of, uh, of Celeste's mother, polystyrene. And, and, and to know that the same kind of approach is going to be taken here too, where Emily McGeoch is going to be front and center in this story as she should be, I think makes all the sense in the world. And it, and, and in a way, I think that excites me even more about this because if, if he does anything close to what he did with the polystyrene story, this documentary is going to be fabulous. Well, absolutely that, um, because initially I didn't know that he was going to be involved. Um, my contact uh, was through um, somebody called uh, Nicola Black, who's the other co-director, uh, and then, you know, mentioned that she was going to be working with Paul on this. And, and because of the, the polystyrene uh, film, uh, I just and I, I loved it and I loved the approach of it and, and how it focused on, you know, the, the daughter and everything. I thought, I thought it was great. And I knew because... John's story, again, it's a sensitive one, you know, and it, it's important that it's handled, I think, in the right way, as I tried to do, you know, with the book itself. So, yeah, you, I couldn't have wished for anybody better suited, I think, to really translating this to film. So you know. when you were approached uh, about this, what did they say? What I mean, obviously, it probably didn't take you a whole hell of a lot to be convinced to agree to this but but what was their pitch to you and in, in, in turning this into a documentary film well i think nicola uh, had been a fan of mcgeoch's work for a long long time and it's something that she kind of had in the back of her mind i think obviously coming from scotland as she does as well you know it's it, it has that connection obviously with john but it was a case of i think until that point they didn't really have uh, like a reference point or things to draw upon until the book. And then suddenly when the book was there, it's like, okay, so it's all contained pretty much within one volume there of what we would need to, to actually put, you know, a documentary film together. Um, and, you know, obviously they, they said to me how much they'd loved the book, which was, which was lovely to hear, and that they were just so committed to wanting to do it and to do it for, for all the right reasons, you know, really about uh, shining a light on this amazing talent that has gone you know, by and large, kind of under the radar for so long. But, I, I, you know, the beautiful thing is now I just feel like there's, you know, there's a sort of pull around him and he's getting more mentions in in magazine articles and you're seeing him popping up here and there on news feeds on, on the internet. And, you know, people are talking about him again, which is which is brilliant. So that was kind of where it was at, really. I think they're just, you know, as I said, Nicola was a fan of his work. They both really enjoyed the book and they're just super committed. One of the things that, that you did before you wrote the book and we talked about this at, at, at length, was that you really felt that in order to tell this story properly, you needed 
a certain level of uh, permission, perhaps, from uh, McGeehock's family. And, and Emily was you know, certainly a part of that decision and bar- a part of that conversation. As this is now developing into something a little bit different in a different medium and a different platform, did they get the same kind of permission from her that you did? I mean, what, what, what was her involvement early on in this process? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, at the same time that everything was coming to me, it was also coming directly from them to Emily as well. So she's been very involved in in the whole process to date, um, which, again, is really highly encouraging because they're handling it in the way that, you know, I'd like it to be handled for whatever they're having it, you know, but it's it's that carrying on. And so she's very much, uh, you know, knows as much about it as I do and is involved as I am. And, and I think that just adds to the strength of it. And, and the more that you can pull on that kind of stuff, it can only be beneficial yeah. for the end product. You know? I, I think it's it's like you said. I mean, you know, McGeeock's talent is is recognized by people who really understand the music and by a lot of fans. But by and large, people may not remember the magazine records. They may not remember uh, Visage or, you know, even the fact that he played on, you know, Pill or, or, or anything else that he may have done. The fact that you have brought him into light and the fact that this is now you know, turning into a film, this is not only a, a great victory for you, it's a great victory for his family, who I, I got the sense in your book were really moved by the fact that th- there was somebody to bother in telling this story. Like there was somebody interested enough to bring him the stature that, that his talent so readily deserved. They must feel so grateful and happy that this is being done. Mm. I think it's well you see it's a mutual thing because I'm so indebted to them they're such lovely people um you know I got the chance at the book launch that we had in London the initial one to meet with John's mother and uh, his brother and his brother's partner and and that was just you see like of all the the celebrities that I got to meet and all the musicians all that kind of stuff and my god I met some of my absolute heroes and that just blew my mind but the most um poignant and the most moving moment to me was meeting john's mother without a shadow of a doubt yeah that just superseded everything so we've got i think you know quite a nice little kind of you know understanding relationship going on um we, we were all pretty friendly and and it's it's just lovely and i, I just think how good because i'm sure you know that I'm sure John would be pleased with that, you know, that it's being done in such an inclusive way where everybody, you know, has got an opportunity to take part and share in it. So, yeah, any kind of gratitude that they feel, my God, it's magnified and mirrored by me. Believe you me, it really yeah. is. I, I've been doing this podcast for um, for about four years now, and, and there are certain guests that I've I've tried to get over the years that are just simply not accessible in any way, shape, or form, and Lord knows I have tried every in every possible way. But in writing this book, and maybe it's out of respect for, for John McGeeock, and maybe it's just the way that you presented it, you talk to people that simply do not grant interviews. Susie Sue, Howard DeVoto, they don't talk to anybody. And, you know, they've they've earned the right to do whatever that they want in their careers, even with, uh, with Susie making a comeback last summer. Now that I am pretty heavily involved in trying to book guests for this podcast. I understand the complexity and tenacity that sometimes you need in order to book these kinds of interviews. And yet you are able to do it. Tell me a little bit about that process again. Again, you know, when I've tried to, to reach out to both of them, I kind of hit brick walls. 
you did it with with a with a concept in mind that clearly touched even them and they were willing to tell that story tell me about that process a bit well i think let's let's have it right uh, when i started approaching people we were in lockdown and I, I really believe that the book owes a great deal to that because people were available. Um, tours weren't happening. People weren't really, I'm not saying they weren't doing anything, but, you know, time was kind of, it was in, we were in a different headspace. We were in a different world. Um, so there, there was an availability. I just, I didn't know how you speak to people. I didn't know how you go about it. So it was just a case of emails to people, managers or record companies or whatever it was, and just kept on until I got a response. And then, you know, I'd find that, okay, such a body will speak to you. That blew my mind. But then I knew once I had that opportunity, my God, I couldn't waste it. You know, because the, the, I, like you say with Susie, I mean, you know, I think before this book, it may have been seven or eight years since she'd last given an interview. And she, we spoke, you know, countless several times and, and we got to meet. I mean, we went and had lunch. I mean, for me, that was just like, <laughs> what on earth? Like, where did this come from? So that was crazy. But I just found that I think for a lot of people, hopefully, I mean, if we're looking at the Banshees, because of the John's exit from the band was a bit messy, to put sure. it, you know, mildly. Uh, and I think that I'm not saying that necessarily people feel guilty, but I certainly think that they look back on it with with a kind of a bit of regret that maybe that it wasn't handled. Uh um, you know, in the way that maybe now with hindsight, with time, with age, with experience, it may be, may be handled, you know, you approach it differently. So I think, I think that people really wanted to uh, give him his due, recognize what he had brought to the groups that he had been a part of, which was more than significant. I mean, you know, I, I firmly believe that the Banshee's best period was those two years where John was a member of the band. I think those three albums that he worked on, you know, you know, would demonstrate that to anybody um but i think also the fact that he was overwhelmingly so well liked so highly regarded you know and not just by you know your likes of Susie or billy idol or or, or whoever else but but also by uh, you know his guitar techs the people who work behind the scene who worked for him that he was very loyal to and had these really good friendships with and, and they could speak of what he was like you know away from the stage when they went to the bar and played pool or you know did whatever and just the kind of generosity of the man and they wanted to give that back especially as we're saying given the fact that he hadn't had the, the the recognition that he he deserved. I think that's uh that's important to, to to point out. One of the things that that is so clear in the book is that this really was a very decent individual who you know had his demons. He certainly had his you know addiction issues, and you know they did eventually take over. But in those years with magazine and you know particularly like Juju from uh, from Susie, it's such an I mean, it's such an amazing. I was listening to it again today, and you know when you hear you know songs like you know Spellbound or or Monitor or you know whatever, it's like who comes up with guitar lines like that? To me, that's the thing that's really amazing about him is we've all heard guitar players that kind of play like a you know they have like a like a rote feel to how they play. This guy just had a level of creativity that at the time really nobody had, and in fact, I think when you when you kind of look at at the history of it all, you know, that transition from punk to post-punk, there's no real defining line that separates the two. It just seemed to morph into that other than maybe metal box from pill, maybe the, the, uh, the first magazine record, uh, in 78 real life. 
But it seems that the difference between McGeeock, and, and you can agree or, or, or choose to disagree, is that he never felt like he had to play down to be accepted by punks. So many people did that, and a lot of people didn't, you know, started off without a lot of experience in their instruments and got better. McGeeock wasn't like that. He didn't have to, and he could literally probably have played with any band at that point. And I think that's what makes him so such a remarkable talent in that block of time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we, we can't underestimate the fact that, you know, John was just a natural creative. Uh, he'd gone, as we discussed before, to, to Manchester to study fine art. As a child, he he uh, learned the piano, then he'd learned sort of uh, classical guitar. Um, I just think that, yeah, there was no way that for somebody like that, he respected his craft. You know, he 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 respected, I think, the power of music, what that meant. I think he saw guitar playing, uh, you know, done right as a responsibility as well, which may sound slightly over the top. I don't know and a bit grandiose, but I think that 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 that's actually true, you know. And and he was for all we talk about the demons and obviously the addiction issues that he had. I think he really did. Um, he did have a, a sort of a very, very uh, super pro kind of attitude to whatever he was doing. And I, I think that's sort of best demonstrated really by the fact that from band to band, and this is a, something that I talk about an awful lot, but I, I believe it's true. And even from album to album, John adapted and he was a different player. You know, he, I don't think you would say that John on Juju is the same as John on real life or, or you know, uh, the correct use of so, or you know, I think that there was a, there was a natural progression with him, which was also about who am I working with now, and then so how do I best serve that? And that takes a, a degree of of well, so, certainly awareness, intelligence, sensitivity, and and that was John. You know, I think that sort of sums up his personality as well in in a lot of ways. And he just he he was the same as he was as a person kind of translated to how he worked as a musician and i think that's a key term with him as well that john was a, a natural born uh, musician and creative as much as he was a wonderful wonderful guitar player I, and we probably talked about this before i think the time that i became aware of him was when he was with pill um and and the album happy and i because i remember in college playing the song seattle and, uh, you know, well, I remember a lot of people saying, well, you know, it's not as good as Metal Box or it's not as good as Flowers of Romance or whatever or the first album. You can't listen to that song or that album and not say, man, who the hell is playing guitar in this? Because that is the thing that stands out the most. It's just so, you know, melodic and beautiful and powerful. And, and you know, to me that while Pill was going through this, you know, almost like this transition to a more commercial territory, you know, he still stuck out like more than maybe anybody else in that band that's kind of hard to do when you're working with john lyden to be the star of the show yeah he was i mean i mean you know when i spoke with alan Diaz, for example you know played bass in pill at that time uh, you know, he was very very clear that mcgeeock was musically the absolute driving force of that band at that time you know he was all coming really via him um so yeah i think it was i think that 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 representation or that version of pill was as much in McGeeock's image maybe more so as it was even with Lydon you know and yeah. I, and I think and John Lydon I think we touched on it before you know for for all of his eccentricities and and, and ways shall we say um he 
he knows a good musician when he hears one yeah. and he, he he's able to to find interesting really super talented people to work with and i think that's a strength because you know Leiden himself isn't especially musical but he 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 knows he's got an ear for it and and john i mean he had approached john uh prior around the time that john was starting up the armory show with richard jobson he yeah. actually approached him then to join pill but he'd knocked it back so it was just one of them things. I think with Pilda, I think as you say, in that first album, yeah, I, I think there's some there's some great stuff on that. I, I think it drops off a little bit for me personally, for my taste. Um, but I think a lot of that had to do with the times and the production, you know, a few other things really. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've 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 interviewed Martin Atkins, I've interviewed Ja Wobble, uh, you know, about it, and they've and they've both acknowledged McGeeock's talent and and his creativity, and and again, you know. Both of those guys were gone by by that point, but they could both see you know the difference between you know what they had been hearing in in England for for a long time, and then a guy like this that just comes out of out of space in 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 some ways. He's just there's a there's an unearthly level of talent that this guy. I mean, you know, Leiden had Keith Levine, and Keith Levine had certain moments of brilliance, but I think when you when you compare the two, I mean, it's 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 not a safe comparison. I mean, I think I think McGeeock was just so much more musical than even a Keith Levine, who was great. Yeah, he was somebody with a great deal of respect for one and loved that, you know, that that what Pill were about. He'd always been a fan of Pill. But yeah, John was just, uh, I mean, he was just an absolute one-off. Uh, I don't, I, there's no, there's nobody I can compare him to, certainly not, you know, because I, when I listen to John as well, and it's a point that you, you try and work out through his playing, well, who, who was he influenced by? Who were he? Yeah. And I can't hear anybody in his playing. It's, it's so totally John McGeoch. It's his own incarnation. It's his own thing. Um, and I just think that from that point of view of nothing else, um, but of course, you know, it was it was everything with John. It was it was his it was his creativity, but it was also his openness to 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 what he was doing, to working with certain technologies of how to use effects, of keeping it simple, of not overdoing anything, and, that, and that's the beauty of John, and just allowing the music to be what it should be, and and also as much as playing, not playing as well, and giving tracks space, which is such yeah. a. a kind of thing that maybe we don't talk about enough in, a, in 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 music and in songs but john knew that so that's like again that's like almost like a it's like a sort of superpower really of knowing actually if i back off at this point it'll make the next part even more like amazing or whatever so yeah just just an absolute one-off unique talent you know one of the things that that's that's so interesting to me and uh and 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 certainly following you on social media over the last year or so uh, it, it's become pretty obvious that, that, you know, that you and I share a common ground in a lot of ways with music. And I think we both would agree with that. But what's fascinating to me is you're a 40 year old guy. I'm a 57 year old, old man. And you know, I kind of came into this, you know, late too. I was a young kid in 1978. I didn't, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know shit back then. But your level of understanding and your, the depth of your musical knowledge, I think is really impressive. Not that, you know, someone from in their forties wouldn't have that, but your taste in music is very much of an, of an older generation. Where does that come from with you? I mean, you're talking about music that existed, you know, long before you were born and you know more about it than I would say 99% of the people who were involved in it. I mean, it's really very interesting that you're so connected to that, that whole genre that whole space of music in in 70 you know, late 70s to all the way through the 80s 
I think I put it down to the fact that probably from around the age of three, music became uh, my way of understanding the world. Um, I was so captivated by sound. Um, you know, I, I found people, communication, a little bit difficult. I was a very, very shy young child. Um, and I, I was a bit awkward, um, but I just found that the one thing I really connected with and understood uh, through how it made me feel was music. And luckily, I like to think good music, you know, um, but very broad. You know, I've, I, there's lots of things that appeal to me. Um, I love, for example, bass. You know, I love bass. So therefore, I love funk and soul and, uh, and reggae and all of that for that side of it. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe as well, I was fortunate that in my in my upbringing as a kid, I was surrounded by good music. Like my mum had a fantastic record collection and was obviously she was very much of that sort of punk uh, era and the sort of jazz funk and all the different stuff that was going on. So I grew up with disco records being played, hard rock, Led Zeppelin, Beatles, Elvis, uh, The The, uh, Wire. I mean, it was all there, you know, so I had a real kind of... I had a free reign to sort of like develop my tastes and and that's what I did and then of course I just kind of took it to another level of obsessiveness and really delved into stuff and I always got a thrill out of going to the secondhand record shops as a child because like not trying to paint myself as some little pauper but I didn't have the money to be buying CDs at that time they were very expensive but I sure. could go and pick up a record for what would probably be a few dollars and um and just develop an understanding for stuff and, and knew what I liked, you know, and it's always been, it's always been like that. So I'm always still on the hunt for different things now. And, and you can never run out. That's the beauty of it. There's always stuff, you know, you can tap into. I've got very into like Turkish stuff, that psychedelic <laughs> kind of stuff. You know, it's an amazing thing. African music, you know, yeah. West African music. I love it. It's just, there's so much out there. You can never get tired or bored of it. You know, you know when, when you and I have you know, messaged each other, you know, we've, I, I've, I've, I've needled you a little bit about you know, what you would consider writing for the next book if uh, if you choose to do that. And and one of the stories I thought would be a really good one to tell, and I know you're an, an enormous fan of Adrian Borland and the, from The Sound. I mean, that would be a story, you know, that would be incredibly interesting to to hear. And and, and a lot of people in the States may not know Adrian Borland's you know, story, but, you know, this is a guy that you know, was incredibly talented and had, you know, very deep depression issues throughout, you know, much of his life. And, you know, eventually succumb to those, those, uh, that depression. But, you know, you know, there's a guy much like McGeeock who was brilliant, but doesn't really have the notoriety or the attention that he probably deserved. I don't know if you've ever really given much consideration to that story, but I think that would be a terrific, uh, you know, place to start. Well, I, you know, I, as you know, I absolutely adore the sound and, and Adrian Borland. I'll tell you what, Mike. You were the first guy I ever spoke to, okay? You wanted to speak to me, and we talked, and it was amazing. And let's have it right, you're a Boston Celtics fan as well, so, you know, it's all good. I'm going to give you a little uh, a little exclusive here, okay. and I'm going to tell you who, who I'm writing about at the moment. Nobody else knows, um, but I'm going to tell you. So I'm actually at the moment, I'm in the process at the moment of interviewing, researching, and writing a book about the wonderful uh, late drummer Pete DeFreitas from Echo and the Bunnymen. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's yeah. that's fantastic. That's a good story too, and a real mm -hmm. and a real tragedy what uh, what happened to him. But that's great. In fact, it's interesting you say that because you just I saw that you just received the Will Sargent book, the second uh, Will Sargent book. I mean, how far are you? You're just at the interview stage at this point. 
Yeah, I've, 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 I mean, I have been writing um, and I've got quite a few interviews on board um, and just putting it together. You know, it kind of with these things, they take as long as they take. I mean, the, the, the John book happened really, really quickly. I don't think I should look at that as an example of how every book will, will map out. You know, sure. they, they take as long as they take. And I, ultimately, you want to do right by whoever you're uh you know you're you're doing a book about so um yeah we've got interviews i've done you know i've done some writing of course on it um and just shaping it really and getting the story to be as sort of accurate as fair as it can be you know so yeah i'm excited by it i mean yeah. i'm a massive massive men fan you know um and will's an amazing guy lovely guy yeah um and les as well so yeah Brilliant stuff, and hopefully it'll, it'll do do him justice. I, I hope so, anyway. But a couple of things that have happened over the last week or so, um, a couple of pretty significant losses. I know, uh, you know, Shane McGowan died, uh, you know, earlier this week. But the one, and I and I can't say that I'm a huge fan of of the Pogues or or Shane McGowan. But the one loss that I did feel really horrible about was the uh, the death of uh, Jordy Walker from Killing Joke. I'm a huge Killing Joke fan, and. Uh, much like a McGeoch, this is a guy of such you know uniqueness and power and talent that it's it's an astounding loss, especially if you're a guitar fan and if you've never heard him, that's a guy that you definitely need to discover because I mean, what an amazing, amazing guitar player he was. Oh, absolutely, I'm with you on that, Mike. I love Killing Joke, and he was the sound of Killing Joke. Those riffs, I mean, even and you know, it's it's they're. It's such a fascinating band because for me they still make music that's really exciting really interesting i, I put up a track the other day the great cull as an example but that guitar riff man, amazing so powerful amazing um so yeah geordie walker god rest his soul amazing amazing talent um, and again you see this is that whole thing we're talking about with the post-punk how many like just creative brilliant very distinctive, unique guitarist, because you know Geordie Walker when you hear him. You know John McGeoch, Will Sargent, you yep. know, Keith Levine, Vinnie Riley. Oh my God, the list just goes on and on and on, you know, of these people who really like certainly shaped how I perceive, you know, what the guitar should be and what it's capable of doing beyond just the kind of Jimmy Pages, Jimi Hendrix, you know, as brilliant and then as amazing as they are. There's, there's two things about Geordie that I think are really interesting. One, Killing Joke was his very first band. I mean, it was almost like he was fully formed when he joined this thing. And uh, the other thing that, that's amazing about Killing Joke, and I agree with you, there are very few bands that get better over time. <laughs> A band that's been around for, you know, 40, 50 years, and they're, you know, these are guys that are, you know, deep in their 60s, and the music just gets, has, has gotten more and more intense as the years have gone by. And it's, it's, a, it's a band that it's just, it's just impossible to to not respect the fact that they never, well, apart from outside the gate, they never just, they never tripped and fell. It just, they, they always got more powerful. I, I, that's one of the things I, I totally respect. And if I can ever get jazz Coleman on this podcast, I would do it in a heartbeat. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So while I have you on here, how about those Boston Celtics? Hey man, how about them? You know, Mike, I got to see them for the very first time in my I, life. I saw, I yeah, that was that. Uh, that must have been a, a blast for you. Now, did you see them in Boston or did you see them in New York? In New York, Madison Square Garden. Yeah. There we are, my son and my daughter, with our Boston Celtics gear on. You know, surrounded by Knicks fans cheering them on. <laughs> ah, 
it was amazing. I mean, my heart was in my mouth because it looked like we were we were we were coasting. You know, first you know we were coasting that game first half really, but then it gave us some uh, sticky marks towards the end. But yeah, it was just a brilliant experience. Fantastic. I'm always optimistic when it comes to Boston, and then you know <laughs> we kind of falter a little bit. So let's hope we can we see it through this this time. Well, let's hope so because they're playing they're playing fantastic. I mean, this this in season tournament I think is total nonsense, but you know what? They're playing great, and that's all I care about. Absolutely. Yeah. So getting back to the McGeoch story and the, and, and the film, I know the, that a Kickstarter campaign has been started to get this thing going. Tell me a little bit about that, you know, where that's going and what's the response been? I mean, I know that, you know, crowdsourcing is really the way things go and, you know, in independent projects like this, but, but is your experience with this so far, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we started it off and we've, we've set a, there was a, you know, there's a figure there of 40,000, uh, pounds that needs to be needs to be raised. Um, now the whole thing with it is, and obviously for people who are familiar with how these things work, there are pledge packages available as well. So when people are uh, putting money in, they can pay a certain amount, and actually, you know, you get stuff that belonged to John. You know, stuff that he wore throughout his career, bits of jewelry, maybe plectrums he used, t-shirts he wore, there are loads of stuff on there, and, and there will be more. You know, there will be more things. Um, so keep 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 your eyes peeled on that. We've only got now, though, about seven or eight days left. Um, yeah. And I think we're on about, I'm trying to think the equivalent in US dollars would probably be just over $30,000. Um, we need to we need to get more backers in. We need to get more people on, on, on board with it because it's such a, you know, obviously, I think it's such a worthwhile thing and it will be an amazing film. Um, but yeah, it's a lovely, I think it's a lovely thing to, to do anyway because it has that kind of community feel to it as well. Yeah. And so, you know, people can get their names on the credits and all that kind of stuff. And I love that, you know, for people who are fans of, of John's, that they can feel that they are part of his story, which is which is wonderful. Um, so let's hope, fingers crossed, that we get we get that money that we need to, to put it into getting this film made. I hope so. You know, when we first talked, you know, a, a while back, I was uh, given a digital copy of the book. And, uh, and I loved it so much. I actually had to buy a hard copy of it. Like I, when I said, when we started off here today, I, I, I really am so happy for you because I, I know that you've poured your heart and soul into this project to really get the respect that it, that the project you put together deserved and that he gets, uh, the, the respect that he deserved. You have to feel so great about what's happening. And I'm, and like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of of what you've done here because it's it's outstanding work rory oh look thank you so much mike i, I really appreciate it and i absolutely when you said you wanted to speak again i was overjoyed because I, I had so <laughs> much fun last time and i had no clue i'd never done an interview before and you were great talk to it was great fun um and you know thank you so much for all your support uh, it's it's meant a lot um it's wonderful thank yeah. you i appreciate it too rory i really do and and when the defreitas book comes out you let me know because i'll i'll want to read through that too oh absolutely mate I'll, I'll get a copy since you know no doubt about that my friend. okay no doubt. awesome we'll talk again rory thank you so much thank you mike take care of yourself all right you too take care the name of rory's book is called the light pours out of me the authorized biography of john mcgeoch on omnibus press please check out his kickstarter campaign for the film and do your best to help him if you can. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, rate it, tell all your friends about it. Follow along on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok for regular updates. You can also email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.